Hello, and welcome to the Classroom Critics. My name is Andrew Martino, and today we are pleased to bring with us once again William Ivers and Walter Freeman. We're talking today about Federico Fellini's 1963 film, Eight and a Half. Um, it is a strange film. Many consider it a masterpiece. Uh, it is certainly something that we'll be talking uh, in depth about, I think, today. It's directed, of course, as I said, by Federico Fellini. The story is by Fellini and Ennio Flaiano. The cinematography is by Gianni Di Venanzo. And it won, uh, it won two Oscars, uh, Best Foreign Film and Best Costume Design. The costume design was by a guy named Piero Gassardi. And um, the, the it's almost iconic costumes that we see in this particular film, I think, set a a real pattern for how people dressed in, and not only in modern Europe, um, but the United States as well. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as we as we move along. The film stars uh, one of my favorite actors, Marcello Mastriani as Guido Anselmi, the director who is looking for uh, a new kind of creative project. Claudia Cardinale as Claudia. Uh, Claudia Cardinale starred in many films, uh, also starred in one of my favorite films, Once Upon a Time in the West. Anouk Ami as Louisa Anselmi, Guido's wife, Sandra Milo as Carla, and Jean Rogot as Carini Domier, the, um, the critic and uh, co-writer on this particular film. There are also a cast of others that come in and out of the film, and uh, we'll talk about those uh, people as well. This film is really kind of hard to define, uh, but if we could sort of really give a kind of elevator speech. It's about a successful film director who is coming off a really successful film and is on to his next project. And he has a kind of idea for the next project, but it's not really fleshed out. Or he doesn't have an idea and he keeps lying about it. And as any successful artist is, not just film director, um, he has people around him all the time that are really, really pushing him to go on and make this next big thing. So I see this film really as not only a, a film about directing, it's not only a film about filmmaking itself, but for me, it struck me as it's about the creative process and what happens to us when we come off something really, really successful, however we want to define that, and where do we go after that kind of success? And moreover, what does success do to us? So with Guido, we get all of these emotions wrapped up and, and to make matters worse, uh, he has a wife that he doesn't really know how to communicate with. He has a, a mistress that he uh, communicates with only in bed. It's a, a highly sexualized relationship. And uh, he's, you know, this is a film that goes back and forth between reality and fantasy, which is one of the hallmark of Fellini's, uh, of his oeuvre, really. So I want to begin by just getting uh, uh, Bill and, and Walt your your first impressions of this particular film, and then I thought we would drill down after that. So, first impressions. Well, uh, you know, for me, I, I this is, you know, the first time I, as I mentioned before we went live here, the first time I've seen it in, in a few years, um, and uh, you know, when I saw it originally uh, in college. It was just, it was kind of an overwhelming experience. You know, you don't know exactly what you're watching. What is this? Uh, you know, especially if you are not, um, you know, if you're not as well-versed in film at a certain stage, you know, you, you sort of are asking yourself is, <laughs> what am I not getting here? Right. Um, but the more you watch it, 
you know, the more you, you sort of realize and get a sense of what Fellini, what Fellini was trying to do. Um, you know, and now I'm at a point where I just, I love it. And I just, um, I love exploring and just seeing something new every time I see it. And I, I think this, this movie marks, you know, probably the height of his, um, well, you know, in the early in his career, he sort of started out as a, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Fellini scholar, but he sort of started out with more traditional forms, you know, more part of the, yeah. Yeah, the neo-realism neo uh, movement. You know, for me, my personal favorite Fellini film is uh, La Strada, mm -hmm. which kind of represents perhaps the height of, of his earlier period. Um, so this is really an example of an artist who is just totally moved on to something else, you know, just kind of did what he, uh, he succeeded at what he originally trying to do and then eventually decided to say, you know, what, I, what other ways can I tell a story? So, you know, he s seems to have given up on, you know, traditional narratives for narratives that express stories through um, what appears to be, you know, a, a dreamlike uh, form, you know, there's this dreamlike logic here and um, he's not given to the more predictable forms that we almost always expect as, as film viewers. And so I tried to, you know, rewatch it in those terms. Right. Um, but overall, before we get into anything too detailed, um, you know, it, it was a very positive experience for me to see it again for the first time in a, in a while. And, um, I've heard it said that this is perhaps the greatest film about filmmaking of yeah. all time. I guess we can get to that as, uh, at some point, but, um, I found my more recent viewing of it a very positive experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that, that uh, I think Roger Ebert said in his essay on, on this particular film, that it was the greatest film uh, about filmmaking. And Ebert is somebody who knows a thing or two about film, for sure. So, Walt, what, did, what, did, what were your first impressions? Um, first of all, I would like to say, Andrew, in your introduction, a masterful handling of the Italian names. Uh, I was just like, wow, very nice. But, okay, so uh, this is the first time I've seen this film. And I am sure this film is going to grow on me, but I bring a limited perspective in that, as Bill said, and I acknowledge this is a film I think that requires repeated viewing to find the nuances. A first viewing overwhelms you uh, a little bit, and and that's where I'm feeling right now. Now, before people who love Fellini or avant-garde storytelling start writing me hate mail, going, "Well, this guy just doesn't get it," I totally get it. Have you ever seen a film or seen a, a piece of art or heard music that you recognize is a masterpiece and you know why it's a masterpiece and you appreciate the artistry and the nuance, but you just don't enjoy it. And then you feel what's wrong with me. Why should, you know, why didn't I enjoy this more? So my first time watching the film, there were parts where I was incredibly engaged and amused and entertained and there were parts when I found that I had to go back and rewatch because I had checked out like when you're reading a book and you, you you know you suddenly realize you've read a page and you haven't seen it so I've actually seen this film about two and a half times <laughs> in that regard but someone asked me because someone asked me you know how, what film are you doing next and I said eight and a half and they said oh, I've never seen it can you tell me about it and so I started to describe it in this way I said so it's a film where Towards the end, the main character starts to describe the tenuous vision for a film that he has. And you realize as he's describing it that that's the film you just watched. Right. And so as far as like, but, but the thing that, that kind of checked me out, like, like 
aside from Guido, if you asked me to name a character in this film, I couldn't tell you a name. Some of them I can tell you who their functions are. I can tell you who the wife is, who the sister is, who, who the mistress is. But there's a lot of people coming in and out, aside from maybe the cardinal. Right. I really didn't know who they were. Uh, one guy, I guess, was a producer. And, and, and that's, I think, it's all on purpose because, you know, I was reading a couple of, of pieces on this and I was reading Pauline Kael, who I, I think famously didn't like this film. Mm. Um, and she said there's a lot of people that say that this film is essentially, it goes back and forth between the current reality plus the fantasy that is connected in some Jungian way to the reality. But I think it's all fantasy. There's no filmmaker that gets to this point where you're making a film, you don't know what it is, but they're building a massive set for it. Uh, and because film is too much other people involved, even in auteur filmmaking. And so I, I think it's all a fantasy. And, um, and it deals with, as she said, I love this quote, a movie director has two worst enemies, commercial failure and commercial success. And I think that that's where this is. So anyway, long story short, uh, I need to view this film three or four more times because even though I get it, I didn't enjoy it with some exceptions throughout. But I want to acknowledge what you said earlier about, you know, because I think this is an important point. We don't, at least I believe, we don't necessarily have to enjoy something in order to, and this is really your point if I'm hearing you correctly, Walt, we don't have to enjoy it to the sense of, I love that film to appreciate the possibility that it might be a masterpiece. Um, I think books, music, all, all kind of art follow this, this reasoning. I, I happen to, I, I think Bill and I agree on this. I, I love this film. It's, it's one of my favorite films of, of all time. Um, but I can absolutely appreciate people who watch this who might not like it. It's not, it's not something that they, that they gravitate towards. But, but to me, one of the hallmarks of a masterpiece, and this is where I'm going to fully acknowledge this film is a masterpiece, is that a, a piece can be so layered so dense, so subtle uh, in some parts that it holds up repeated exposure to it constantly reveals new depth. Right. And that is a hundred percent this film. Every time I see this film from here on out, I'm going to see things that I think will ultimately add into place. You can never see something for the first time again. Right. And so right now I'm just tapping into the feelings of frustration and confusion and, and being overwhelmed that I saw in this film. But I fully acknowledge that this film is most likely going to grow and evolve in me with repeated viewings. So yeah, I, I any, think, any, it's, it's on me, not on Fellini. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. And I, I t totally get that. And this, I think goes back to something Bill said in his opening remarks that you do feel overwhelmed when, when you watch this, it's like being trapped in a whirlwind. Um, but I do think, and this, I think you'll both agree with me on this point that masterpieces are something worth um, concentrating and thinking about deserve multiple viewings. Um, or they, let me rephrase that. They, those pieces, whether it's a book or it's a piece of music or a film, they demand that the viewer see it again and again and again. It's not us, the viewer, who, who goes back time and time again, but it's almost as if the film keeps pulling us uh, towards it. Even if it's after a couple of years, like you said, Bill, I hadn't seen this film in a number of years either. I saw it in the nineties, um, probably about the same time you did for the first time. And, yeah. and I went back and, and saw it again. And I just really just, you know, was looking for something to watch on Netflix one night and, and I hadn't seen it in a while. I said, I'll, I'll try this. Nobody was in the house. So I had the house to myself and, and I was only going to watch the first 
five or 10 minutes. But when I got into it, I, I couldn't put it down. And I remember immediately texting you both saying, I, I can't stop thinking about this. It was just it was one of those things. I remember um, a couple years ago, my wife and I, we sort of uh, treated ourselves to a, an extremely expensive dinner, uh, 13 courses. Wow. Um, it was a three to four hour experience. It was, you know, fantastic. It was ornate. It was an incredible experience that I'll never forget. But in terms of, if you're going to use the word enjoy, I guess we, in terms of defining our terms here, I don't know. I, I might've enjoyed a meal at five guys more Yeah. <laughs> that depending on how you define enjoy, you know, it's like, I probably have enjoyed, um, I probably enjoyed Raiders of the Lost Ark more than I've enjoyed this film, depending on how you define enjoy. However, this film, Eight and a Half, I think is far superior, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of um, what, it, what it gives me um, and what I need, I think, as a, uh, a consumer of art. So I... I you know, I think that's part of uh, part of the statement of this film too. Is you know, I think we'll probably get into that—the nature of art and what the filmmaker's uh, function is. Um, but one thing, I, as I was watching this, and as you said in your intro, this is 1963. We're talking here, but this film seems um, just as fresh today, yeah, and, and as relevant today as as you know as ever. It's prophetic, I think, on on many levels. You know, it seems to be it was so far ahead of Fellini's time. And if you think about it, he made this at a real striking moment in history. You know, just as um, pop pop culture and the infiltration of pop culture on European countries. Um, <laughs> sadly enough, you know, and, and the shallow nature of of contemporary culture, I think, is really at the heart of this film. And, um, you know, the pop, you know, the paparazzi and, and uh, the parasitic nature of, of media. And, you know, I think this film, you know, Fellini, there, there's some, I think it's difficult to ignore some of the autobiographical nature of this film. And again, right. I don't know too much about Fellini in terms of his biography, but this seems to be a very personal statement and reflective of where he was at this particular moment. And um, I can, I can certainly get a sense of, of what he might've been frustrated about as a uh, successful filmmaker um, in the eye of a heart, you know, of, of a storm. And uh, it just seems to me that he's um, expressing some real frustration with the industry. Right. And what's expected of him and all the, uh, you know, all the expectations that surround him, whether it's from a, you know, a writer, a screenwriter, um, critics, actresses, you know, um, I was really struck by the actress who kept asking him about, um, uh, asking Guido about her character. Right. <laughs> she wanted to know more about her character. And it's just so interesting that he had difficulty answering it. You know, just, he didn't really know himself. He right. was, he's not really sure where this project's going, but it's just, you know, the, the demands upon the the successful artist is just uh, in the bombardment of all that. I just found it really be an interesting study. 
It might go back to something that Kale said and in, in, in from what uh, Walt quoted. It, it's the fact that success can be an artist's worst enemy. Uh, you know, it's, it's that, I'm reminded of that wonderful essay uh, or that wonderful chapter in A Movable Feast by Hemingway where he calls hunger a good discipline. You know, that you have to kind of remain hungry if you're going to continue to push the boundaries. And then all of a sudden when you're successful and all of the money people come in, the producers, the, the marketing people, the project is not yours anymore. And we see that that sort of hinted at in, in this film, actually more than hinted at, that Guido's project is not really his. They keep asking him about it, but it's not his. So much so that they bring in a writer. And you know he's at odds with the writer almost from the very beginning. The writer's a Marxist, and it doesn't <laughs> jive with Guido's sense of, of who he is and, and what he wants to do. And, and to cap it all off, Guido is, for all intents and purposes, going through some kind of midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're successful, when you reach, let's say, the height of whatever it is you do, um, where do you go? Right. You, know, um, you have expectations, right? But the the expectations want you to sometimes do what you've been known to do. You know, um, keep repeating. You know. Uh, I think I can make the illusion, let's say, um, a successful pop group, you know, yeah. why, you know, are, are you going to, is your next album going to be like the last one? And if like not, the Beach Boys. right, <laughs> right. Don't F with the formula. Right. Yeah. But yet you'll have another group of people saying, well, they're just repeating themselves now. You know, they're, they're not exploring. Which what makes you know using the the Beatles as an example of how you do it, it's just amazing that they could continually reinvent themselves and climb the the, the the to the next realm of success, and then ultimately doing what many artists don't do is stopping. Yeah, at the right height. at the height of it, and it seems like uh, Guido here is in a position where. You know he's uh, he's tapped out. Yeah. You know I think I think that does happen to some artists where you just run out of ideas. The the well runs dry, and it's it, it's contrasted by certain artists who get better. You know they get better as time goes on, and they and they do their best work later in life. And again, this this spans all mediums, all artistic expressions. But then you have the artists who just again they can't they they they've peaked and that's it. There's nothing else. Um, but kind of going deeper, I think this also is an expression of, um, you know, I think uh, because you might say to yourself when you watch this movie, okay, well, there's all these beautiful people. I mean, Guido, um, I'm, I'm supposed to feel bad for this guy. He's a successful director. He has everything he wants. Um, how can I possibly relate to this? Um, you know, all these, again, beautiful people, wealthy people. Um, but I think it's an expression of a, a condition that, that most people face. It's this idea of, um, you know, this longing, you know, this unattainable fulfillment. It's kind of a default kind of condition that everyone kind of has no matter where you are, whether you're a successful director or, you know, working a menial job. It's kind of always about what's next, you know, what's next. Um, and Guido finds himself in a place where he's kind of in this malaise 
uh, where his longings cannot be satisfied and he tries to fulfill it in other ways. You know, if he's artistically dried up, his marriage seems to be unfulfilled. Um, he's mistresses, you know, aren't getting him anywhere. And, um, you know, he even tries to, you know, these, these twisted fantasies that he kind of has, they, they're not doing the trick either. Um, now he's, he go he's, he's having health problems, right? Um, he, he goes to the Springs because of right. health issues, right? What is it? Liver? I think so. Yeah. And it, it, it's one of those ambiguous things that, you know, when doctors didn't know what was wrong with you and you'd go to the sanatorium or something like that for, <laughs> you know, so he's there and it's, and he meets, you know, he meets all kinds of people there. Yeah. And I think I'm the same age Guido yeah. is in the film. And I think Fellini picks a really like the perfect point. And I know probably 43 then is older than 43 is now, I guess, in terms of uh, life expectancy. But, you know, he's at a threshold going from youth to, you know, middle age. And he's experienced a sense of um, mortality. So, I mean, this, this film covers a lot. You know, it's just, again, we, we've been over this, but we could go on five hours about this film. But so you, you have to kind of address his you know, his dealing with his own mortality here. And I'm thinking of the scene where he lowers his father into the grave. Yeah. Um, you know, he seems to be afraid of losing what aging has been, aging is about to take away from him, which happens to all of us, you know, like the creative juices of youth and, you know, um, sexual potency, that that whole thing. He's, he's, he's at a point where he's, he's going <laughs> to, He's he has to confront out. his own mortality. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be, he's, he's starting to decline. Right. And, uh, you know, again, I think that's a, a great age because, you know, where is he going to be in 10 years, 20 years? He's thinking, thinking about these things. And um, it's kind of like you know, going back to the music thing. The best rock and roll is produced by young men in their twenties. Yeah. You know, you look across the history of rock and roll, it's all, <laughs> young people in their twenties. And eventually, you know, you, you start doing different things as a musician, but there is that, there, there is something to be said about the, you know, the, um, the enthusiasm uh, of those, you know, the original creative impulses that you had when you were young and, and Guido seems to be losing them. I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, Bill. It really fascinated me. Two, two things when you were talking. First of all, what does it mean to enjoy a film? And you were comparing, say, you know, enjoy Raiders of the Lost Ark, but this is a better film. I just think that's an interesting concept to consider because, you know, people always say, you know, what does it mean to enjoy a film? And there are films that are masterpieces that you're glad you've seen, but you never want to sit through again. And then there are films you're going to watch over and over again, even though they're not by any stretch of the imagination masterpieces, you know, popular doesn't always mean good, but you were using the metaphor, Bill, of that five-course meal that you sat down with with your 13. wife. It took several thirteen. Sorry, <laughs> it took five hours, and and, and 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 so it made me think to myself. So this film is a lot like that five-course meal, and that I I sat down. Imagine what that meal would have been like if you sat down and ate it by yourself with no context, people just walking up and endlessly putting something on your plate and you eating it. And the next thing comes along and you're going to get a sense of it tastes good. This is made with some artistry, what have you, but there's no mirror to it. And so the next time I see this film, I would love to see it with you guys 
and preferably on a big screen yeah, or somewhere where we can stop and talk and enjoy. Uh, to me, that would make this experience, you know, much, much more enjoyable. The shared community of, of, of a film uh, with, with, of this depth and artistry and imagination and creativity, but also this film that is very challenging and very uh it does not it forces you to approach it it doesn't explain anything to you i think I, anyway that's just my point i want to go back to that met- metaphor you made about the meal i think I, i'd like to pick up on that point because i think it's really important it talks about the experience of film and and how we experience it with others in a darkened room <laughs> but yet we're coming off a year and a half of a pandemic where a lot of us or most of us around the globe have been isolated even from loved ones. So we are watching films differently uh, from how we used to watch them in the past. I hope that doesn't stay. Movie theaters are opening back up again. My wife and I did go see a film uh, two weeks ago and it was great to be back in the, in the theater. Um, you know, everything from the smell of popcorn to the, the stranger you're sitting next to, it is a shared experience, but yet it's an experience that is completely almost isolated. Even if you're sitting next to your wife or your husband or your brother or your cousin, you're still alone watching that film. But, the, the, but there is a camaraderie there. And I think that these films, like you mentioned, Walt, should be experienced with, with a group. Uh, yeah. This is a perfect film, I think, and I've never done this, and I don't know if either of you have. I've never shown it to a class, um, but I would love to show it to a class yeah. just to look at their expressions as they're watching this film, because I'm sure it would begin with the kind of bewilderment and then maybe slowly move into some kind of understanding. Well, there's a, there's think, a shared kinesthetic element to being in the room with someone, even if you're not talking to them. Right, exactly. And, and that's how I think streaming services and stuff going right to streaming is changing movie making because yeah. it's no longer a communal experience. I'm sorry, Bill, I cut you off. No, no, no. That's a great point. And I think um, there's something hardwired into us and, you know, going all the way back to our, you know, to our prehistoric ancestors who gathered around a, a fire and storytelling and experiencing stories were extremely communal. And that was the expectation, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's a uh, total contrast from, let's say, the novel, which is yeah. a very solitary perhaps one of the most solitary experiences artistically that you can, uh, right. you can, you know, you can experience. And I, I, you know, I think that's, that's, that's the way novels are written, but um, yeah, I really hope we're not losing. I, in my hometown here of Cooks uh, in New Hampshire, there's a cinemagic that was, uh, that went out of business months ago. I was happy to see that uh, some other film company has moved in and they're going to be reopening, which is, that is good news. Which is good news. So, but um, yeah, I watched this. Uh, I watched this film again by myself. Yep. Um, my wife went on, <laughs> went in the other room, <laughs> and uh, so I just sat there sipping my wine in the dark by myself. And I, I do like experiencing film that way sometimes. Yeah. Um, by myself, no distractions. And I, I do kind of approach it almost like a like reading a novel in in your own room in the dark where no where no one's around. But right. I do enjoy watching the film, whatever the case might be. Um, Citizen Kane comes to mind. Uh, Andrew, remember when we went to go see? Um, yeah, The Magnificent Ambersons. It was The Magnificent Ambersons, yeah. okay. And I did see Citizen Kane in that same theater in Cambridge, uh, The Brattle. Yeah. And uh, it, it, was, it was like seeing it again for the first time. Right. It was a, <laughs> a cliche. And 
yeah, I would like to see this again with, uh, with, with the two of you in the room and uh, just see how, see how the others react and, and just uh, get that um, communal experience. Well, you know, one of the great things about being a teacher of film or a person who uses film in their class, uh, hearkening back to our classroom critics sobriquet, okay. is, you know, somebody said to me, how, how do you watch those films over and over again? And I always say, I, I don't always watch the films. I watch people watching the films. Right. To, 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 to show a film like, say, Dr. Strangelove or, say, this film to a group of people who've never seen it before and you just see little light bulbs popping on all over the room is unbelievably rewarding. And, and also to sit in, in a theater with people that, you know, you know, you're going to have a rich discussion about the film with mm -hmm. your place. Next best thing. It's the next best thing than um, seeing it again for the first time. Right. You know, which you can obviously, as you said, Andrew, you can never do. Um, but it's the next best thing to see it with someone else who hasn't seen, it, especially students, you know, who are at the age where they're discovering some of this great stuff and, You'd be surprised at what they haven't seen. Yeah. You know? and, and I do think that this is, a, well, let me ask it as a question. You already know my answer because I kind of jump-started this, but is this or should this be a quote-unquote required film for somebody who is interested in, in film? I do. I, I believe this is, I, with my intro to film studies class, I do work in a, uh, a foreign film unit. Yeah. Which obviously foreign film could be an entire <laughs> course in and of itself. Right. Um, and I try to work, I don't work this one and I work in La Strada simply because I, it's just one of those personal favorites that I, but I, I do believe this could easily be rotated in and out. And if I was to select three, I, I work in a Fellini as, as one of the three in the unit, um, a Fellini, a Bergman, uh and perhaps a, you know kurosawa yeah you know, right you got you know for me that it's kind of the uh it's the basics it's the the bread the the, the original substance yeah of the foreign film and um history of foreign film and i would also say absolutely yes uh this film is so rich there's so much to talk about even someone who who may come away and go that what was that would have a lot to say. There's so many scenes that I want to comment on yeah. and I know we're going to get to them. Uh, but yeah, I would agree, Andrew, that yeah, this, this should definitely be uh, on, on that list of films or if you're interested at all in film, history of film. And, and the best thing about the, the kids that we have these film classes with is, is as Bill said, not only the, is there so much they haven't seen, there's so much they're open to that you wouldn't expect them to be open to. Yeah. Right. Also, film. a film like this challenges, again, I, going back to what I said in my opening, uh, this challenges what film narrative, quote unquote, should be. Yeah. And we just, especially now, um, here's my, <laughs> um, my gripe about the film industry that seems to work into the, every episode, but that seems to be what's happening now that because the film industry is controlled by, you know, these corporations that don't like right. to lose money so they go with the sure things and sure things you know that feeds into what the narrative should be where the inciting incident what page on a script the inciting in the inciting incident has to be um and a film like this this kind of just pushes back on the idea of okay uh what does it mean to to, to construct a film what is a film narrative supposed to consist of and, and fellini 
was a true artist mm -hmm. and um he, he pushed against that sense that's that's what he <coughs> as a true artist he felt that was part of his job this this really works in with the film too and, and Mastriani's character i think because it seems to me that the director and if if, if guido is a kind of stand-in and i think he is for fellini you can't read him otherwise then it, it, I think it coincides with everything we've been talking about. There is uh, being a part of the community, but also apart from the community simultaneously. And we see that happening. And, and Fellini was the same way, very social. You know, he was a, a celebrity, um, almost a godlike uh, celebrity in Italy um, when, he was, when he was alive. And even after his death, there is this kind of cult following around him. Um, and yet, there is this isolation of the artist. So this, this kind of leads me to my next point, which I think is important, going back to that sense of what makes art, because if this is a film about art, filmmaking for, for just one example of that, then can it be done in, in a community um, setting? Can, you know, and I'm thinking of you know, a, a team of writers sitting around a table building something and, and coming out, as opposed to that sort of classic or perhaps a better phrase is romantic notion of the artist who is there by himself or herself, um, you know, in a garret somewhere with, with no money and, and sacrificing himself or herself for their art. And I think that, and this will lead us into, I think, uh, that first scene, right, of the film, which is completely silent. And I had forgotten that it was completely silent. I thought there was something wrong with the sound on my, on my television. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of turning it up and it's all the way up. And, and I didn't realize that, you know, this is a man who's completely trapped, um, you know, trying to kick out the doors. He's stuck in traffic. There is this profound sense of alienation, of, of a, a kind of aggressive frustration that's going on. And um, I really had problems with that first scene until I watched the entire film and, and was able to, to see it in context. Yeah, I guess there's a couple kind, a couple different alienations we can talk about. There's the alienation of the uh, uncompromised artist, right? But there could be an alienation of the very successful commercial yeah. artist where you're so successful, you're so famous, that you just you can't relate to anyone else um you know to use the musical metaphor again you're elvis right yeah um, right. you're you're alone even though you're surrounded by thousands of people you're always with someone you're 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 alone in that sense um with the first one the the artistically the artistic alienation where you, where you choose. And this reminds me of something Coppola said in an interview recently. He was asked, uh, a film student asked him some advice. So any basic advice that you could give young aspiring filmmakers? And I'm paraphrasing obviously what Coppola said, but he said something along the lines of, you have to choose what you want to be. Do you want to be Spielberg? Are you going for the Spielberg route? Or do you want to be John Cassavetes? Yeah, you know you have to choose because they're gonna take they're two different paths. If you're gonna go for the Spielberg route, that you know there's certainly a higher chance of success in terms of obviously getting to Spielberg's heights is is not gonna happen. <laughs> but you know you can achieve some sort of success within the within the industry if you play the game, you do what you're supposed to do, 
you understand the market, you know, market forces, and you do all the things that are expected of you. Like in any industry, if you play right. the game and you're willing to, someone, the, the cynic would call it sellout. <laughs> others well, would say, others would call it knowing how to succeed. Yeah. But if you're going to be John Cassavetes, um, yeah, you have to be willing just to produce art and, and, Uncompromising, right? You're I mean, Cassavetes was completely uncompromising in his vision uh, of what art should be, and which was all about love. Right. Well, and to, to tie that together, this film to me seems to be what would happen if Cassavetes became Spielberg. Like, you know, uh, Guido does not seem at all satisfied by his filmmaking. Um, it, it seems to be, it frustrates him. It causes him mental health issues and it, it mirrors his relationship with women. He wants, he wants them all and none of them satisfy him. And then when he's gotten what he wants from them, almost like his films, they've, they serve him no longer. He keeps them stored up. That's the big centerpiece fantasy he has right. in this house with women, which I found myself laughing out loud at when he was trying to beat them with a whip and what have you. But um, I, uh, that was my, obviously very, very funny scene, very telling scene. But to me, it's, it's like that. He, he starts out as a complete pure, pure artist. His artist elevates somehow into popularity, which often, yeah. often never happens. And then it traps him. And, uh, you know, so I think Cassavetes becomes Cassavetes because he remains Cassavetes. Right. And, and, and now, I, of course, because Cassavetes did that, no one else can follow in his, in his footsteps because well, they'd always be compared to Cassavetes, even his son. It, of, and in lesser hands, those films yeah. are awful. Like, you know, we see how many people, how much avant-garde cinema co comes out of Italy or other right. places trying to be the next Fellini. Right. And, and, and just rendering this unwatchable stuff. I mean, self-indulgence is art, artistic in the right hands. Yeah. In, the, right. in the other, uh, in lesser hands, it's self-indulgence. Well, th this, I mean, then the question becomes, is celebrity the enemy of art? In other words, once you become a celebrity, do you, do you have any shot at, at, success i mean a true kind of artistic success you have to, it has to be within your nature to be you have to have the willingness to really challenge what you've established in in the willingness to turn your back on it to throw it away and again i use <laughs> i use the beatles and I, I'm, I'm sure it's no surprise to those who know me that i'm a huge fan but he, they were willing every time to turn their back on what worked Right. And that was within that was within their nature to do it. That all four of them got bored re really easily. It was just their nature, and they wanted to. Oh, this worked. Okay, that's it, fine for this. But six months later, we're we're this now. Yeah. And that's that's very counterintuitive to what, um, what everyone's going to tell the artist, right? The the successful artist, whether it's the manager, uh, the you know, or the the agent, the market forces, the, the, the stockholders, it's all about, okay, well, this is working. This is the trend. We're going with it and we're going to milk it until it's, and so you have to be, you have to be extremely willing to push back against that. And, and you can see the stress in Guido's uh, whole persona as he's really trying to look for artistic uh, freedom. Mm -hmm. And because no one wants that from him, you know, they want, that people want success almost more than they want artistic merit. That that's more important. So that's you know that's how sex, success is defined. And uh, here we have 
you know, Guido seems to be bored by his success. You know, um, he longs for true, pure artistic freedom, but he seems to be, you know, again, stunted by everything in his life. He's stunted by himself. And, you know, you can kind of see it, you know, it's sort of a maddening feeling of wanting to say, and I think anyone who creates has experienced this, the, the, yeah. the maddening feeling of wanting to say something to express something, but you don't know. It's not that you ne don't necessarily know how to, how to do it. You don't even know what it is. You know what I'm saying? You don't, you, there's some sort of in, um, impulse, this intangible thing that you want to express and you, you can't even articulate it to, to even put it into an artistic expression, you know, and, um, but you know, something is there. And so I think freedom is what is at the heart of what uh, Guido wants. And it kind of thinks, it makes me think back to his flashbacks regarding his uh, Catholic yeah. roots, you know, you know, as free as he wants to be artistically, spiritually, whatever, he can't shake his Catholic guilt. It follows him like this, you know, the shadow it, and it prompts the question, can we, ever be truly free as, as humans, you know? Well, so, you know, I, it's, it's funny you bring that up because automatically what comes to my mind is Bob Dylan's, you got to serve somebody. Yes. No. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think he's, he's really, he's really feeling that, you know, are, are hangups that we inherit or experience as a kid, are they permanent? You know, are they permanent hangups? Do our childhood fears follow us? and influence us throughout the entire span of our, our lives, you know, and, um, you know, and I think this is, this is why Fellini has these flashbacks there. And, uh, okay. I, I wanted to bring this up too, and not to shift gears. Suddenly it's just, it just popped into my head because especially with the Catholic scenes, even though on the one hand they're, they're maddening, they're frustrating, they're terrible when you really ponder what's going on there. Aren't, they're funny too if you ask me yeah. there's, 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 there's comedy there and Fellini from what I've read kept reminding everyone involved with this production we're making a comedy right that's right <laughs> um, and I don't I don't know if it comes across in an obvious way but I think I think Fellini liked to explore the, the grotesque quite a bit and sometimes when you explore the grotesque so profoundly, it, you can't help but laugh at it. And I think that's what I get out of a lot of the Catholic. Um, right. It's, uh, go ahead, Walt. Sorry. No. Well, I, I wanted to go back to a point Bill was making about, you know, popularity and creativity in the artist. Uh, you know, we, we're going to have to blame the audiences a little bit too. We, we love to create the monsters that we chase with pitchforks. Yeah. And, and how many times have you heard people, they don't like something because it became popular, something that's really good. How many people say, I don't like the Beatles. They were too popular when, and, and that completely pretentiously ignores the artistry of their work. Um, and, and so, you know, what is it? Yogi Berra said that, uh, nobody goes there. It's too crowded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of his famous Yogi Berra isms. And I think that sometimes too, you know, there, there, there's great art out there that people dismiss just because yeah. a lot of people like it. I mean, art can be approachable. Sure. And I think that there's an artist like Fellini that makes a film that, that pioneers new ground and everyone tries to imitate him. And then they turn around and blame Fellini for creating a genre of incomprehensible films when he didn't, he created a film that sparked it. And a lot of people, when they're pointing their fingers at the artist, 
for being too popular, too mainstream or whatever, really should be pointing it at themselves. I mean, look at this whole situation just to bring it into the modern context of Simon Biles in the Olympics yeah. right now, the things that she's done physically are, cre- are, are incredible. And yet at some point she says, I can't do it. I, I got to take care of myself, my mental health at this point. And people are vilifying her, you know, her, this metal is more important than yeah. this, the health of this young girl, and especially with the trauma that she'd been through and all this and that. And so we sometimes have to have to um, remember as the audience that we're part of the art. Yeah. as well. Um, I, and I wanted to go back to that. I know you want to, we're, we're going to respond. Uh, to no, but I think that that's an important point. You know, he, Guido may or may not be in the midst of a nervous breakdown, perhaps even more so than that midlife crisis. And, and I think that the nonlinear aspect of the film is a testament to that. We don't know in the film at a certain point, what is fantasy and what is reality. And at the end, it could all have been fantasy. So we begin in this period of, of complete, or this statement of complete isolation, um, probably exemplified by his being a, a balloon up in the air in that <laughs> iconic scene. And I know you hate the word iconic, Bill, but it, you know that, that sense of he's, he's tied or tethered uh, to that. Two, gradually becoming, and this goes back to what you said, Bill, about the grotesque, the film becomes more carnivalesque. And that's not accidental on Fellini's part. You know, it is a carnival with all of these cast of characters and they're, they're partying in, in, in that sense. And, and that, you know, when they go to that movie set that is completely incomprehensible to me, it's this kind of rocket ship uh, science fiction-like set um, that, you know, they're there to party, to, to, to start filming and, and it, it all kind of blows apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, is Guido a, a good man? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you ask that because one of the questions I had is, you know, is this, is this film, do we look at it differently in the Me Too, you, um, you know, movement with, with, his, with his treatment of women and just how women are, are kind of portrayed in this film? And, and I don't want to suggest that, you know, we should look at anything with, with a, a contemporary lens because I think that that's unfair. But I think that we cannot also ignore the fact that is this a good person? Um, you know, he doesn't treat his wife very well. He doesn't treat her necessarily poorly, although he is cheating on her. Um, he doesn't treat his mistress that well at all. The, the, the ideal figure is, is Claudia, right? It's, she's the ideal female for him, and she's unattainable in, in that sense. She's the goddess. Mm-hmm. No, women are, he uses women for his own purposes, yeah. um, ways to fulfill whatever... Um, is missing from his life and it's not about how you know what can he do to um you know what can i do for these women and you know how can i be a better person for my wife or even for my mistress it's not that doesn't seem to be um on his agenda it's, he's you know he's at the center of his own agenda he, he's yeah i think it's part of the point you know he's very self-obsessed and um it's all about his hang-ups but at the same time, we can't help but kind of feel bad for him because I think there's perhaps a little bit of uh, of Guido in all of us on some level, you know, at least in terms of the, you know, whatever the spiritual longing, the the uh, the unfulfilled longing. I think that's just innate with most thinking people, you know. Um, but yeah, I definitely think we to answer your question, we we definitely we must view it differently, <laughs> you know. And um, it, is, it is a film from the point of view of a male. 
and I do see this as as for for as a masculine film that's that's defining a certain kind of masculinity at a certain time. That's and, true. And, and, he, he doesn't enjoy any dignity in his womanizing. That, I think that that's it. That may be his saving grace, you know? And he looks so cool doing it. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, the, the costume design, we haven't talked about that really yet, but it, it's just superb from the Prada sunglasses all the way down to the black suit and the, the, the white shirt with the very thin black tie. You know, yeah. Mastriani is just, you know, he's a sex symbol for that time. No doubt. Now, okay, so his, maybe I'm looking too much into this, but is there anything to be said about his, his hat? Yeah. Is that, <laughs> that ridiculous hat? Yeah. Now, okay, so it's not European. Now, maybe someone's going to correct me and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, in 1963, there was a trend um, <laughs> where you have this quasi- I don't know, uh, fedora that looks yeah. more like a cowboy hat. For a little bit. <laughs> is there any symbolism there? Why the, is, is it an American reference? Yeah. It's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, you know, it's, but the hat has always bugged me. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> one of the most American aspects of the film, again, is it's the infiltration of uh, pop culture worship that's, you know, certainly a an American export. Yeah, around this time, is infiltrating yeah. Europe, and I think Fellini sensed that. I think he he's mourning it in this yeah. particular film. I don't know. I just saw uh, that kind of struck me as an, a kind of an American little uh, symbol there that I can't quite put my finger on yet. <laughs> Almost making fun of the spaghetti westerns, in in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, it could be the mark of a filmmaker that whether it it was intentional or not, it works and yeah. it fits. I mean, when you look at as, as Andrew was saying, he's so well put together and so on point with almost everything. And then there's that hat, and maybe that's him in a nutshell. I mean, he's a you asked a question before: is he a good man? Well, he's a good filmmaker. Yeah, he's a good artist. He is not a good husband, and he is not a good lover. So you know. The, the it wouldn't make sense for him to be head to toe perfect there's got to be that um tragic flaw in it and it it's literally a tragic fashion flaw in this case there's an yeah. arrogance that goes with him too and i'm thinking of that scene where they're in the park with all of those cafe tables and then he you know and and he's sitting with his wife and then his mistress comes in and sits a few tables and then all of a sudden we get the scene where he's by himself at the table and he has his feet up on the table just kind of enjoying how that's all playing out what about the the prostitute at the beach scene i forget her name um you know the scene i'm, I'm talking about the oh, flashback yeah. when he was Sidious. a kid yeah, right, which, right. Which which comes before the uh, you know his chastisement yeah. <laughs> before the uh, Catholic school teachers. Um, but it's very interesting that she seems to be to me the most the the character who's living who's the most free, yeah, spirited. You know, she's outside. She's an outsider. She's you know we don't know any backstory with her. It, it's it's strange. Uh, she just seems to live in this little bunker at the beach. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I just find it to be a very fascinating scene. She's, uh, 
clearly an outsider and she's a source of fascination for the kids for various reasons but i don't know what do you make of that scene as the as a flashback it's very it reminds me of very much she's the strega right the italian word for witch um and she's like this a siren you know with odysseus that that tempts that tempts him into the kind of becoming a man and sexually because it is sexually but i found that there's and i may get hate mail for this there's something grotesque about her and i think fellini did that on purpose um you know that there's and it, it may equate the idea of sex with the grotesque uh, in in that sense, that it makes him sick in a way, which is maybe, and I don't want to psychoanalyze him too much, but it may be why he's got these hangups about about commitment and his relationships that are of a sexual nature all the way through his adult life, that it began with something that was grotesque. And the church Actually, teaches him she's evil, but he goes right back to her. Yeah. And then she appears in the end in his right. fantasy stable of women. Yeah, right. Especially when you contrast her with the glamour and uh, with of all the other women in his life she is you know obviously earthy and yeah completely natural um and unconventional in terms of uh she obviously he found her attractive on some level but you know she's um she's not gonna be star she's not gonna be a starring actress in any of his (laughs) right right films when he gets older so I just found a very interesting, quirky scene. I mean, if you look at the women in his life, so his wife is, she's she's fairly plain, but she's quirky in a yeah. sense. The the prostitute, as Andrew said, is grotesque, but strangely fascinating. His mistress is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, her voluptuousness and her outfit and her uh, there, and, and his sister is sassy and acerbic. And the one woman that we don't know anything about, but is physically beautiful is the woman that he can't attain. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, the women in the stable, there's the, the ridiculous girl who does the very bizarre dance, um, very scantily clad and yeah. odd and desperate. And so it's just, it's, and the, 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 the black woman, the, she's very exotic and, and he doesn't know what to make of her. And I, I was laughing out loud in that scene. <laughs> and then we get that one scene where they're all together in his house. Right. And, yeah. It's this kind of communal harem that it, that he has, uh, that all of his past and his present come to uh, in, inhabit one particular place. Yeah, and they have to buy into who they are. You know, you're right. in his fantasy, so you're relegated to the second floor if you yeah. you're no longer relevant. And yeah, it's temporary, right? <laughs> their 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 place in his life is temporary. Yeah, and he tries to contain them with the whip. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's the part when I. I that's the part of the film where I lost track of time. I was, I was so amused by that. What the hell is this going on? Right. Yeah. You could just imagine Fellini in the background. He's not directing the scene. He's lying on a couch narrating it to a psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> well, did I read correctly uh, that this lot, much of this film was, was written on the go. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That he, he almost, kind of in a very meta way was kind of frustrated over the direction of this particular film as he was actually shooting it. So everything from that to, to the title of the film eight and a half, which is, is, you know, his eighth film, but really is, is eight and a half because he'd worked on three smaller projects uh, between the seventh film and, and this. So, 
doesn't really give it this kind of title. It's it's this weird title that again has become the standard sort of you know uh, part of his oeuvre. Haven't this hasn't this been remade and they call it Nine? Yeah, I know there's a I know there's a musical version. It wasn't Daniel Day Lewis in a yeah. version of this? Yeah. And he I mean, plays, what is it? Uh, why, why round it up? <laughs> I've not seen it, I and cannot. I have not seen it either. Yeah, I, for. And I, I mean, we all love Daniel Day-Lewis, but that, that was, I'm not ready to go there yet. Yeah, that's one reason why I've been resisting it. I just, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to see him sing. I didn't know he, I didn't know it was a singer, so I'm afraid to hate it because <laughs> I love Daniel Day-Lewis so much. Um, but also it's kind of the idea of, um, there's certain films you just should not re, you know, remake them. I don't know. Maybe it's a good movie. Maybe I'll give it a chance at some point. But it'll, it'll at least be an interesting movie, even if it's horrid or or if it's brilliant and underrated. It wasn't well received, as I recall. Yeah, I, I think that was one of the few Daniel Day Lewis bombs. <laughs> I know uh, Sophia Loren's in it. Yeah, right. With, who is a major, you know, partner with Mastroianni in in a lot of Fellini's films and and other films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Might might be worth a look just for morbid yeah. curiosity. Right. I mean, there's, there's some high power attached to it. We've been talking a lot about bigger themes, more so than we've done with other podcasts uh, with this particular film. Why, why do you think that is? Hmm. I, I would venture to say, and we, we had a little bit of this issue with Dr. Strangelove too, if I remember this isn't a linear story. It's not, uh, it doesn't have traditional narrative structure. So you talk about things, it's, it's the sum of its parts. And so, you know, we can isolate a scene and talk about the suffocation scene or whatever, but it's hard to put that into a narrative context. And so I think that this film, maybe it's a good thing is it almost forces you to talk thematically about Mm -hmm. it. Right. Yeah. It's very episodic, this film. Yeah, I agree. Um, so it's tough to really kind of point to like, you know, the arc of a particular scene. Cause you know, as we talked about earlier, it's, it's, uh, it's breaking form. It's challenging how scenes are constructed, how, you know, uh, how a scene plays out. So yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, I just think there's a lot, <laughs> this, this film is, uh, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a 13 course meal. It really is. Then we have the ending, right? Or, or towards the ending when we have that kind of them dancing in that circle uh, where they're all kind of holding hands, almost as if you're at a play and they come out, the actors come out at the end and, and take that bow together. Um, that there is something very performative in that sense about that, which again, highlights the meta quality of this film, a film about filmmaking. Yeah, I, I definitely... I, it, it reminded me of a curtain call. That's for sure. Yeah. That, that, that scene. Yeah. Now there's the press conference, right? Yep. Where he goes on the, under the table. Yep. What, what, what do we make of that? <laughs> isn't that, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that where he tries to explain what he's doing and that's where the awareness comes in that what he's trying to say, you've just watched. Yep. Is that at the press conference? Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I've only yeah. seen it once. So I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's almost as if, um, like in uh, T.S. Eliot writes The Wasteland and then puts in 300 pages of footnotes so yeah. that people can go back and understand the poem. Maybe he was feeling guilty at that point and said, maybe I need to throw the audience a bone and give them some direction. Because I also got the sense in the beginning 
a lot of the dialogue sounded like it was lifted right out of reviews of his earlier films. Yeah. And so this is him explaining. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I'm taking that wrong, but that's, that was my impression. No, I, I see that. Now, the, um, the Woody Allen film Stardust Memories is basically a homage to Eight and a Half. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because he does the same thing. Uh, Woody Allen does the same thing with that movie where, um, to put that in context, that came out in 1980. And uh, right on the, so you have Annie Hall in uh, 1977, which was the height of his earlier career. And then he comes out immediately after Annie Hall with a film called Interiors, which is uh, a total, you know, contrast from all his earlier work, which was a Bergman-esque kind of drama. Uh, not a single laugh in the entire film. And he was criticized for, you know, and I, I don't know for sure, but I would think that a lot of the critics were coming out saying, we, want, we liked him better when he was doing his earlier, funnier films. And uh, in Stardust Memories, a lot of people are shouting that at, um, at him. We you know, why don't you, why aren't you funny anymore? Why aren't you doing the uh, earlier, funnier films? And, um, so I, I would think, I, I would think Fellini was astute enough to do something that clever to actually quote his critics. Yeah. I got the sense when I watched that, that scene that, that Guido was, he's, he's trying to avoid as much as possible saying anything definitive about the film because it's like, it's like a writer who refuses to talk about the book that he or she's working on at the moment. Something in the magic is lost. So for me, I was always about planning the film, talking about, uh, you know, not really talking about it, but planning it. This is what we're, what I'm thinking about doing. It's in my head. But as soon as he begins to articulate it, it becomes real. And then when it becomes real, it's certainly less magical in that sense. So it's I, I get that. Yeah. Process. Yeah, I get that sense with Beckett's waiting for Gatto. The minute you try to say exactly what Gatto is, then you just define the film and there's That's no, right. there's no room for interpretation. There you go. Is it yeah. slavery? Is he God? Is he right. religion? Is he is he peace? And it's like as soon as you say that, that's how you see the story, and that's the end of it. So. And then there's only that way to see it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you think- let me ask you a question. Let me pose yeah. a question here because you know, Bill, you said you talked about uh, Annie Hall interiors and Stardust Memories, and I know that you know Fellini is his eight and a half film. How did this change? I don't know a lot of Fellini's films. How did this change? the films that came after for him. This is, this is his new direction now. Well, it's not exactly, I mean, he, his major shift was in 59, I believe with La Dolce Vita. Yeah. Uh, and I could be wrong about that, but I believe that was the real, okay. Now he's, he's doing something really different now with his, uh, with his approach to narrative and style. Um, but this is considered, um, the master, you know, the, the true uh, mastering of that new direction. And then that from, from here on in, his, all his stuff is pretty much, um, you know, um, in this particular vein. Of course, he does shift to color at some point. Yeah. But La Dolce Vita, that's another great It, it really is. Film. In fact, yeah. it, it's been a while, but I, um, in terms of enjoyment, <laughs> like we were talking about earlier, 
Um, I think I may have enjoyed the Dolce Vita more mm -hmm. in this one um, when I first saw them in college, but could be different now. I'd like to rewatch re that one again too. You, you, you know, this film, watching this film to me was a comparable experience to watching The Other Side of the Wind because yeah. you, know, you guys had seen this film before when you rewatched it for this podcast and I'd never seen it. And then none of us had ever seen Other Side of the Wind and it took us a while to wrap our heads around it. And, and that's where I feel I, I, am, I am with this film. I'm still trying to wrap my head. And the more we discuss it, the more I'm seeing things that, you know, the first viewing didn't reveal to me. And I do right. think that, that, as we've said earlier, that's the mark of a great film that, you know, we keep discovering something new about it. And this film for me is, this is my favorite Fellini film. And, and, and I think it's, it's at the height of it. He's at the height of his powers. And, and th there's just something about, maybe it's because it's about the creative process for me. And, and that's what it's, it's commenting on. This whole notion of celebrity and the paparazzi, which in Italy is, is different from how it is in the United States uh, at this particular point, certainly. Um, but Fellini is this superstar, this celebrity who, who I, I believe celebrity gets in the way of, of, of true art. Didn't the term paparazzi come from La Dolce Vita as a yeah, character? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that whole, yeah. Paparazzo is a, uh, a journalist, a reporter in uh, La Strada, or uh, La Dolce Vita. Yeah. Now, question, is Guido brave or weak for moving on um, from his film? He turns his back on this project, right? So yeah. You know, I, I reserve the right to change my mind, but um, <laughs> it's, I found it very brave for him to do. He could have taken the money and, and, and probably gone on and whatever he had turned out would, would have been a success. Um, but he, he's, not, he's not willing to compromise at that point. He's got to figure his own life out, I think. He comes to that realization that until he figures out his own life, the art has stopped. which is kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of artists say that, you know, they don't go to therapists because they don't want to figure out what makes them tip because as soon as they do, the magic stops. <laughs> but ironically, Fellini himself embraces his own we and his ambiguity yeah. and his compromise to make his, as you said, his best film. Yeah. Which is brave. <laughs> yeah. It's a film that a lot of people, I mean, there's so much that's been written about this film by academics and by critics that, you know, people trying to figure it out. Right. Well, they should just listen to the classroom critics because we've nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. This is, uh, yeah, it, it is quite a film that makes a statement, not only about art, but it, it is, I think, a real watershed moment in, in, in Fellini's life, certainly, but in Italian and European cinema. Uh, I think it, yeah and it's it's again it's 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 relatable it's even though as I said earlier it's you know populated by all these glamorous characters um, who of a certain socioeconomic level that mo you know many of us cannot relate to right. but we we can still tap into you know the humanity of, of what they're experiencing and it's a you know it's definitely a far cry from the you know um, neorealists you know yeah. who are more concerned with you know let's say with the bicycle thieves you know right. father and son you know peasants 
Um, you know, Fellini, when he got to this height, he was, you know, they say, write what, you know, write what you know. Yeah. That's exactly what he was doing. And many of the neorealists, by the way, and all across the board, found experiments like this to be um, a betrayal of, of the life after World War II and, and what the Italians were trying to achieve. Right, right. Well, it's easy to see. I mean, after the Second World War, people were a little tired of chaos. Right. And so they wanted, you know, they wanted the safety and familiarity and uniformity and groupthink. Yeah. And, you know, after a generation, you rebel against that. Yeah, exactly. And not to mention, um, you know, it, it, the Italian film industry was um, sort of rebuilding itself. And exactly. so they had the ability to make these larger budget films that were certainly more baroque and with the earlier neorealists you know you could make a, a film you know on the cheap yeah relatively well i think that uh, this wraps up our uh meandering but really interesting discussion of of fellini's eight and a half uh again we touched on a lot of the i think the bigger topics for this, but it's a film that lends itself. If you have not seen Eight and a Half or any Fellini film for that matter, uh, we encourage you to do so. This, uh, and gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong, is really the first of, of, of a planned series of foreign films that we want to explore over the next couple of podcasts. Not only to, to show that cinema is beyond the borders of, of Hollywood, um, but to talk about the influence of foreign cinema um, in Hollywood, but as well as in our own lives and how we think about the human condition, which is ultimately what film is about, uh, even more than art, I would argue. So uh, on behalf of William Ivers and Walter Freeman, I want to thank you for joining us this time on The Classroom Critics. And um, as always, please uh, follow us on Facebook, uh, download us on wherever you get your podcast, and please leave us a, uh, a comment if you liked what you heard, or if you don't like, we're always interested in that as well. And if you have an idea for a film that you think we should talk about, um, please send it our way. So until next time, thank you very much for listening. Ciao.